Welcome to Sabbath School brought to you by It Is Written. Excited to have you back again, and this week we are delving into week number five of our study of the book of Genesis. And this week we are taking a look at all nations and Babel. And our guest this week is Dr. Stephen Bauer. He's a professor of theology and ethics at Southern Adventist University. Steve, welcome. We're glad you could be with us. Thank you for having me. So we're digging into a subject here, several subjects, that are often misunderstood. And if we can unpack these correctly, I think we're going to get a a clear picture of God and and his plan for, for people's lives. But we've come into the book of Genesis, and everything was great at the beginning, and then there was the fall, and stuff has just gone downhill. But now we're looking at Babel. And we get to Monday's lesson here. Sunday's lesson, it talks about the curse of Ham. Now, depending on who you talk with, there are some misguided ideas about the curse of Ham, but, but let's just, just dig into what are some of the underlying things that we need to understand to correctly understand what the curse of Ham is all about. Well, Ham has been a controversial topic, and I'll get that in a moment. Um, uh, the lesson very briefly hits respect for parents, and I will uh, expand on that part because the uh, commentators on this passage are wide and varied with some very um, salacious <clears throat> theories on what Ham did that brings this curse actually, quote, on Canaan. And that's part of the problem uh, as well. Uh, but it was clearly some kind of disrespect. And in the context, uh, the, the opening of Genesis 9 uh, Noah and his sons are told to be fruitful and multiply, and then there's some covenantal stuff. And then eventually it comes back, and you have a second time where they're told, be fruitful and multiply. And so it's in this context of kind of being a second Adam figure, you and your sons, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, very much like Genesis 1, that... Um, uh, here it's in verses 1 and 7, if people want to look it up. It's in this context, then, that Noah becomes the farmer and plants a vineyard and makes his wine to get, that gets him drunk, which has him laying, quote, uncovered in the floor of his tent. Um, and then later it says he was, you know, uh, his son sees his nakedness, Ham sees the nakedness. And he apparently tells his brothers, who then walk in backwards to cover things up. And so, what's going on here? Uh, is this just uh, um, the shame of nakedness, or is there more? And again, the salacious suggestions suggest that there was a lot more. I'm not sure I agree with them, but in the context, two things. First of all, the language of uncovering, that he lay uncovered, um, in Leviticus 18, the uncovering of nakedness is a euphemism for sex with the person, uh, marital uh, sexual intimacy. And so the fact that he was laying uncovered, and then we have the language of nakedness, some feel that there was some sexual violation by Ham. Um, I think likely more of a voyeuristic. He saw the nakedness, kind of a pornographic view. Think today, if you had three sons or four sons living nearby, and the youngest son 
sneaks into your home and puts little web hidden webcams that you don't know about in the master bedroom, in the master ensuite, and so forth, and then shows some of the video to his brothers who's like, oh, and they, you know, swoop in to cover the situation. If you had a situation like that, you could understand why Noah would be so upset. I also think that it leads to um, an interesting observation then that here we have a righteous family who comes out of the um, flood. The world was so wicked that God's going to destroy it. Ham has built the ark with Noah, so he's put up with the 120 years of building the ark and whatever um, skepticism and, and um, you know, persecution, so to speak, uh, uh, resistance, mocking, uh, perhaps family loyalty issues help him stick there, but he's put up with all of that. And now we go through the flood and we come out the other side and we're in this resettlement to be fruitful and multiply. And Ham suddenly seems to manifest some of the pre-flood wickedness. And it's suggestive then that the professed people of God so easily get used to the surrounding culture that it becomes normal for us. And we don't always critique it. And once he had the pressure removed to stand with dad and, you know, kind of the attacks, and it's just this united family, suddenly what had been normalized erupts without uh, a critical analysis and gets nurtured even and starts to separate him maybe from Noah morally and spiritually. So um, this is an Old Testament problem of the people of God absorb local culture and don't critique it. And what's normal here, uh, the other culture says, why in the world are you doing this? Uh, this is normal. Well, now why are you doing that? Well, now this is normal. And so uh, this is a reminder, I think, how each of us, even if we profess godliness, can so easily absorb the surrounding culture without critique and end up acting in less than moral ways. Uh, because we weren't paying attention to the difference between world and, and God. I think, as you mentioned, we can see evidence of that today, or that it certainly is a risk, especially for maybe young people who are raised in a Christian environment. Mm -hmm. And then once they go off to, to, to a boarding school or to college or something like that, that sort of thing can, can manifest itself for them as well. Well, I think adults, too. You know, we all have uh, our pockets of normality. Um, the younger generation, especially with the prevalence of social media, um, and we'll save this for later, but kind of like the one language of Babel was a uniting factor in magnifying evil, social media has become almost an international language that our kids especially live and breathe in, and it just rubs off on you by osmosis. But even the less um, digital generation, our work environments, you know, if we're here in the more capitalistic West versus a more tribalistic Africa or 
Confucianist China or something. Um, we've grown up with certain things being normal, and this is the way life is, and we don't stop to evaluate. So one may suffer with absorbing, you know, postmodernist culture out of the internet, while the other is picking up the greed of the corporate world, um, even as they rail against postmodernism. And so each one of us can do it in our own way. And this is why I think the people of God need to have cross um, um, relating, not only generationally, but internationally, because um, Christians on one continent may see things in America, you say Africa could see something in American culture that, hey, you guys need to look at this because we're blind to it. And we might say, well, there's something in your culture that we think you're blind to. And if we actually listen to one another, we can help each other in godliness. Good point. Good point. So we talked a little bit about the curse of Ham already, but there's also a curse on Canaan. Where, where is, how do these differentiate one from another? Uh, and how can we better understand uh, each of these? What about the curse on Canaan? Well, first of all, I, there's not a direct curse on Ham. The, the curse is on Canaan. And this has been a hot spot. So I got to address two things as, um, as we're running into this segment here. One, um, Canaan was told he was going to become a servant or slave. It could be a paid servant or a slave to his, to his brethren, to his relatives and so forth. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But I'm going to suggest this is not a caste system imposed by God that Canaan is now a second-class subservient citizen. Uh, this, is more, um, this is more like uh, in Revelation, woe to you, heaven and earth, because um, the devil has come down to you. And in other words, you're reaping some consequences here. Uh, I didn't will for Satan to afflict you, but he's come down and be aware, and you're going to have some suffering. And uh, the Bible is very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, that uh, children are not punished for sins of the parent, and uh, parents for the sin of the children. And this is reiterated in Amaziah, who obeys this when he executes the assassins of his father, it says he did not uh, execute the children in obedience to the command of Moses. And then they quote Deuteronomy 24. And again, Ezekiel 18, the whole chapter is God saying, you die for your own sin and I'm going to get rid of this proverb that I'm punishing you. So whatever this is, the curse on Canaan, it's not God punishing the child for the sin of the parent. Um, rather, you're going to reap the consequences of um, bad moral choices that perhaps Canaan, more than his three brothers, um, seemed to be sympathetic to. And what's interesting is American slavery tried to tie Ham to Africa. And he is tied to Africa, but not through Canaan. It's through his three other sons, Egypt, Put, and Cush, who settle North Africa. But Canaan settles the Middle East. And the curse is on Canaan, not the African contingent. So there, there's a big confusion there yeah. that has resulted in, in, unfortunately, a fair bit of racism. Yes. And so it's a misread of this text because there's no tie to the curse of Canaan to the African population to, to subserviate them into 
slavery to, you know, whites or Europeans or, or whatever else, but this is a classic case of people kind of having a conclusion and trying to find a proof text in the Bible to justify their own desires uh, this way. So again, I would say this is a curse based on that you're reaping a consequence and a heritage, and what you do with that heritage will lead to these kinds of consequences. It will break you down. Take Pitcairn Island, for example, when the mutiny, they went there to be free, and they actually had more men than women. And so the higher-ranking men each took a wife, and two or three sets of women had to share two husbands. But then the men start drinking and murdering each other, and in a very short time you were down to like two or three men and a bunch of pregnant women, and they're like, this ain't working. And that's when they found the ship's Bible and started, you know, we need something higher than ourselves uh, to redeem that situation. And so the morality of Ham in taking advantage of his parents, particularly probably in a pornographic way, um, Canaan apparently imbibes in that more than his three brothers. And you look at the Canaanites later on and what they became, it's, uh, it's pretty devastating yeah. down through history. Well, we're going to be back in just a few minutes to continue our study of the look at Cain and the nations uh, and, and the Tower of Babel and, and what all came from that. So we're going to be back in just a moment. But I want to remind you, if you have not already done so, please be sure to pick up the companion book to this quarter's study. That is on the book of Genesis by Jacques Ducan. I know that you'll be blessed by it. There's some phenomenal stuff in there. We're going to be back in just a moment as we continue looking at all the nations and Babel. We'll be right back. This is Pearl. When Pearl heard about the Eyes for India initiative, she decided she was going to take matters into her own hands. When Pearl's birthday came around, she invited all of her friends over for a birthday party, and the theme of the party was Eyes for India. She told her friends about the thousands of people in India who couldn't see, and how this critical eye surgery could change their lives. Instead of gifts, Pearl asked that her friends bring donations for this important project. Because of Pearl's influence, seven people are now able to see. Her story inspired our brand new mission kit, it's a box that has everything you need to fundraise your own project for Eyes for India. Whether it's at the front desk of your business, part of your small group, or a special church project, this kit is guaranteed to change lives. We can't wait to hear about all the creative ways you find to make this resource come to life, just like Pearl. Welcome back to Sabbath School, brought to you by It Is Written. We are delving into lesson number five, looking at all the nations and Babel. And with me once again is Dr. Stephen Bauer. Steve, welcome back again. Thank you. All right, so let's dive into this. We are looking at Monday's lesson now, the genealogy in the book of Genesis. There are some significant things that we can learn from this genealogy, some things that make it stand out from others. What's the significance of this genealogy here? Well, genealogies in general are about tracing legacy because in the bigger, bigger, bigger scheme, uh, setting all the nations around so you know who's who, but it's also going to trace the lineage for the Messiah who is going to be eventually predicted to come through Abraham. So being able to trace that lineage for the fulfillment of that prophecy 
becomes crucial. But um, the Genesis 9 genealogy is setting up Noah and his sons, which will set up the Table of the Nations genealogies in chapter 10. But I want to take something from Genesis 9 and backfeed for a moment, because a few lessons ago we had the genealogy in Genesis 5. So if you remember, we have the creation story with two variants in um, Genesis 1 and 2, and then the fall of man in Genesis 3, and then Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, where we have the first death. Remember God said, in the day you eat thereof, you'll die. But they apparently don't die because we have skins suggesting sacrifice. Otherwise, they would have died that day. But the plan of salvation kicks in. So Adam and Eve haven't died. So, what? oh, then we have a murder. All right, well, that's... But how, what do you mean we're going to die, you know? So then you get this genealogy of Adam, and it's a unique genealogy in five, chapter five, where you have this formula, uh, so-and-so had a son when he was so many years old, then he lived so many more years and had other sons and daughters, then the total years of so-and-so's life were, you know, the grand total. And then it has this phrase, only in this genealogy, and he died. And then the next guy, he, so many years, son, so many years, total years, and he died. And so as you read Genesis 5, and he died, 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 and the message is loud and clear from Genesis 3, you sin, you die. In the later part of this, however, you have Enoch, and there's no and he died. It's and he was not, because God took him. So we have a hint at redemption. And now with that genealogy opens into the story of Noah, another redemption story. So in spite of all this death, 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 God is working for our salvation. But then when you get to the end of Genesis 9, instead of he had more sons and daughters, you get the he lived so many years after the flood, and the total number of his years are, and he died. And this is the final close of that. Genesis 5 genealogy, but it blows up to include the whole story of Noah, but that's that final, and he died, reinforcing that sin is linked to death, and you don't sin and get away with it. Um, It's going to bring you to death sooner or later, one way or another. So that long segment there, the the genealogy and expanded to uh, to include Noah, closing with, and he died, sort of closes that, that segment of the Bible. But then we get to Genesis chapter 10, and in Genesis chapter 10, we see, uh, we see this, this description of the nations here, the table of nations. Mm-hmm. What's the significance of, of Genesis 10? Well, again, I think it's legacy issues. Um, remember, these are all coming out of Noah, so they're all interrelated. So you can kind of see where all the distant relatives go and keep tabs of who's who. But it also reminds me of Acts 17, verse 26, where in my paraphrase, it says that God assigned the nations territory and time, a time and a place. Um, God, God has not abandoned these people, even though they're not in the messianic line. He assigns them places and times and probations with which to respond to him 
And if God was not interested in those nations, there'd be no need to record it. So I think it's a, it's a, a subtle way of saying God is still interested and cares for the nations, not just those through whom a particular covenant uh, blessing uh, come, comes. And again, this gives the surrounding context to funnel us toward the Abrahamic line where we know that the seed of the woman had to come through Seth and Noah, but where is it going next? And it's going to eventually be through Abraham. And that kind of brings us to, well, really what part of the title of this week's lesson is about, and that's Babel. We've, we've seen this, this movement down up through, through chapter 10 here. What about Babel now? Where do, how do we understand Babel in the context of everything that this, that's been leading up to this subject? Well, again, we're coming out of the flood. And now we've had a season of a few generations that the Table of Nations helps us, you know, put some time into there. Um, uh, I don't know if we have any way of calculating that time, but in you know, several generations. And um, with several generations, you have this um, uh, time for wickedness to redevelop. And that seems to be related to this one one uh, language business that um, it's... Um, how can I put it? Everything about that tower is let us. You seem to not have a strong individualism. That's going to come some in the Table of the Nations where Nimrod, you know, but out of that empire, it moves from this more individualistic to let us, let us, this very collaborative, um, so that if it's us, almost no one has to be quite personally responsible. Uh, it sounds a lot like postmodernism to me in the, in this regard. Um, and so this this ability to unite and collaborate like this really is pushing evil rap- rapidly towards a pre-flood type level. And uh, they're building a tower apparently because they don't believe God's not going to flood the world. They don't believe the rainbow promise, the original rainbow promise, and uh, which was supposed to remind us of God and his promise not to flood the world again. Because uh, the first thunderstorm they hear, they're going to think, oh, another flood is coming, you know. And so um, uh, we see this united against God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar tries to unite the kingdom with the image or the end of time, the kings of the earth against God, and so forth. So this is not an uncommon phenomenon uh, where sin likes to unite and get into this collaborative mode uh, to resist God. And so God has to intervene. So God, excuse me, God does intervene here. And he says, let us uh, come, let us go down. So he's, he sees what's happening and he says, I can't just let this continue because it's going to, it's going to end up in a bad place. What does that tell us about God, first of all? And, and what can we learn from this story of God coming down and, and intervening, confounding the languages? Other than that we have this interest, let us come down as opposed to let me come down may hint at the plurality and the Godhead of the Trinity, but I will leave that alone um, for this lesson. Why does God come down? Doesn't he know what's going on? I would expect he yeah. would. He knows everything. He knows the end from the so beginning. So why does he need to come down and see? He comes down, let us go down and see what's going on. Um, this is a unique theme uh, that... Uh, Adventists have picked up out of Daniel 7, 
but it's actually all throughout the five books of Moses that we call the Pentateuch, or plus Joshua, which is with Moses we call that the Hexateuch. And, um, and that is God comes down to see, to observe, to investigate before he executes judgment. So this is our basic investigative judgment concept in the Bible. And it starts in Genesis 3, where God investigates Adam and Eve and then judges. And then in Genesis 6 with the flood, and God saw, so he's observing, investigating, and hence he responds with the flood. God comes down here, he comes down with Sodom, the uh, Achan story where the whole casting of lots to digging up the tent floor. And it's an investigative judgment that helps people, especially this Babel group who are kind of resisting God and, you know, the, the flood was unfair and so forth. And I get the sense that they should have known that somehow God came down, okay, to see. And he's observing and he's active. So thus, it becomes harder to charge that he is um, acting arbitrarily. God knows, but he goes through this investigation so that we know he knows. So that it's clear that he's acting based on evidence. And so this is why we have the books of Daniel. And then the other part of investigative judgment, I think we can get this especially out of Achan's story, but he, or the flood, um, because you have the 120-year period where God watches and, and Noah is making his appeals. The purpose of investigative judgment is so God has time to confront us with our problems so that we have room to repent. So the investigative judgment is a tool that he uses to try to bring people to repentance. It's not trying to exclude. It's a last call dish effort to bring inclusion uh, and repentance and so forth. And so all of the judgments in the five books of Moses and Achan, plus you go to Jesus, you know, the parables, right? The, the parable of the wedding garment. Uh, they all go into the feast. Then the king comes in and investigates and finds the guy without the wedding garment. Um, uh, the, the, the parable of the talents. Um, uh, yeah, he goes on a trip. He, he gives him this stuff. Uh, he comes back and investigates. What did you do with the talents? And then he rewards and punishes. But he does it based on evidence and principles of justice. And so that's how God shows us that he's not arbitrary so that everybody, even at the end of time, even the devil has to agree God treated him fairly. So when we see God dealing with humanity this way time and time and time and time and time again, all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament, it shouldn't surprise us that before Jesus comes back in the very near future, he's doing exactly the same thing. So my hope and prayer is that you will be ready for that great day when Jesus comes. And our study of the book of Genesis is all about that. It's understanding the character of God, understanding his love for us, understanding how he reaches out to us and gives us opportunity to make wise decisions, to make decisions for him. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. We're going to be back again next week as we continue our study of the book of Genesis. God bless you. Have a wonderful day and we will see you next time.